episode 352 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. We, we actually aren't lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. Uh, we're mostly uh, technologists this time around talking about those things. Uh, but the views that we are going to express are uh, not those of our firms, our clients, our families, our pets, or maybe even ours three weeks from today. But it's going to be a lively session. I'll be interviewing, once we finish the news roundup, Dmitry Alperovich, who's the co-founder and chairman of the nonprofit Silverado Policy Accelerator. And we'll be talking a little bit about what he intends that uh, policy accelerator to do. Dmitry, welcome. Thanks for having me. And for the news roundup, we've got Bruce Schneier, who's the internationally renowned technologist, security, and privacy guru. Uh, Bruce, good to have you. Uh, nice to be back. And back uh, first for her first shot at the news roundup, uh, Jane Bambauer, professor of law at the University of Arizona. Jane, good to have you. Thanks. And back by popular demand, of course, is Nick Weaver, computer science professor at UC Berkeley. Nick, good to have you. Please, lecture. I'm paid to teach and care about my students, not run a research lab. <laughs> ah, okay. Yes, all right. Uh, uh, a little bit of uh, a subtle UC Berkeley dissing going on there. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, and the host and chief provocateur, uh, and it won't need much provoking in today's program. Uh, well, uh, we've got to talk about the hack of the week, the hack of the month, the disastrous attack on Microsoft Excel change by attributed to a Chinese attacker. Bruce, how bad is this? It looks really bad and we're learning how bad it is as the days go on. So four zero days were used by China. First it was a few hundred networks and a few thousand. It's Microsoft said 30,000 a couple of days ago. Brian Krebs estimates 100,000. That's getting larger. And these are Big vulnerabilities, lots of stuff stolen. We don't know how bad this is, but it, it's big. So it looks to me as though it wasn't big until Microsoft was about to patch this. Vol Veloxity, which found this, alerted them in early January. And then they worked on a patch. And in February, just as they were about to release it, suddenly it, this attack is everywhere. Uh, Nick, is this tell us something about whether the patch process at Microsoft has been compromised? We don't know. That's one of the unknowns. But one of the things they could count on is Microsoft is fairly regular at patching. Out-of-cycle patches are rare. So one possibility is they could have gotten word ahead of time. Another possibility is they could have gotten a pre-release of the patch because people do get that for testing and they go, oh, our zero days are gone. Or they could have just gone, yes, we're, we're going to be aggressive enough. Our zero days are going to be gone. Let's just go postal three days before patch Tuesday. So Dimitri, um, and we don't uh, know which one it is. Let me let me drag Dimitri into this. I, it does seem to me that it's perfectly rational if you're doing a stealth attack on selected exchange servers, and you realize that you're about to be patched out of existence, to have an option that that where you just hit the button and uh, you uh, spam the world with attacks on their exchange servers, uh, it, and then go back later and try to figure out uh, what you can do with the access. Uh, isn't that a, a perfectly rational attacker strategy? Well, it is a perfectly rational strategy, except that we've never seen it before. This is the first time we've ever seen the Chinese, or for that matter, anyone else, 
employ a technique like this. So, so I'm with Nick here. I think it's highly likely that the Chinese got wind that a patch is coming out. It's a great vulnerability. They were afraid that there were still many, many targets that they would want to go after. So they just said, let's scan the whole internet, find every exchange server, pop them, and then figure out what to do with them later. But that's not really the danger that we face here. The real danger is that we're now starting to see, as of late last week, other groups getting on the game, reverse engineering the patch, figuring out how to exploit this, and criminal groups starting to compromise these networks. And the real race right now is how do we get these systems patched before the ransomware actors get in on the game. And that's when this really will blow up uh, in terms of the impact. So there's two, aren't there two risks here? Nick, I'll, I'll ask you this. It seems to me there are two risks here. One is that ransomware attackers will get in and that for that they have to use one of these, uh, one of the early access zero days. The stuff that the Chinese hackers have already installed giving them access is only going to be used for ransomware if the Chinese attackers are a ransomware gang, which doesn't seem likely. Not necessarily. We don't know what they left behind in enough detail to answer that question. So we know they've been leaving behind web shells. That is a web service that you can connect to and do anything. If you're setting up a web shell, it's very easy to set it up with just a password. Which ah, means okay. So you just so catch the Chinese going into one of them, you get the password no matter what password hashing or anything else they're doing. But if they set up the web shell with a public key, then you can't do that. But we don't know how they set it up. And let me tell you from web programming, it's a pain to get public key authentication working on the web. Well, and many of them don't even have passwords. Ah, okay. So this will feed the the narrative that says we need some kind of mechanism for requiring selectivity in even cyber espionage because there's been too many compromises that have turned into ransomware. Well, not even ransomware, even the national security threat. Right? There's between this and what the Russians have done, there's an enormous amount of state-sponsored hacking and it is to the detriment of United States national security. Also, yeah, are we going to be the, able to stop that? Uh, I, I, well, we'll come back to that one. Okay. But if they have nukes, because I presume that if Iran tried doing something like this, we would happily drop some smart bombs on them. If North Korea did, what are we going to do? Okay. The, the Biden administration is, it says it's going to do something, but it's not clear what. They still haven't, they've announced they're doing something really hard-nosed but secret about uh, solar winds, and now their uh, attention has been diverted by this attack. Uh, we have no idea what they're going to do, but they are having Saturday meetings, and I guess that's, that's government's answer to actually fixing problems. All right, one, one issue is to what extent can we technologize our way out of some of these problems? And in that context, the U.S. Commission on AI Competition with Japan, uh, with China, has put out a report. We actually talked about this when the report came out in draft, but we didn't say much about it. Jane, what do you think of the report? So the report, you know, at a high level, it basically says we should be spending a lot more money and building up expertise in the government for just like every other report written on just any like every problem other in the report. world. Yes. Yeah, but but I mean, it does say we don't this, we're, you know, we're not talking about marginal changes, we need this major shift in in priorities. 
And, you know, it surprised me a little because I think that the government has been doing that to some extent. I'm involved in some of the quantum information technology initiatives that will help enable AI through through quantum computing and, and especially networked quantum computing that will help quantum key distribution. I'd love to get this group's take on how oh, Nick Weaver is giving <laughs> me a big thumbs down. A big thumbs down. Oh, interesting. Okay, well, so more to come. But the thing that disappointed me about the report is that they also say, and this too comes in every single report, Stuart, that we also may, need to make sure to build in accountability and you know make, making sure that there are ethicists and the right legal infrastructure for these things. And while I don't totally disagree with that, I think it's I think the report misses the great one of the greatest disadvantages we have, which is not only maybe a difference in money and talent going into these things, but whether experimentation can be done with re relative ease, you know, because AI is it's it's hardware and software, but it's also data. And, and so, you know, one, one reason that Stuart knows I tend to be such a skeptic with privacy is in part because there are these unintended effects of basically making it so that we can get really good AI when we're studying space and when we're studying oceans or something. But when we're actually studying people and economies, we need to have uh, a much more pragmatic approach to accessing and using data. Yeah. I, and my, my general rule, and I've, I, this hasn't failed me uh, yet, is uh, especially in this in the context of technology, is when they say ethicist, they mean left-wing ideologue. Uh, and, and so when they say you should consult ethicists, they're really saying we should get more left-wing ideology introduced into this task. Yeah, uh, but no one takes you seriously when you say that. I, I'm sorry. I, I have yet to see an ethicist uh, who wasn't spouting academic left-wing conventional wisdom. Maybe I'm wrong, but... You haven't listened to me, Dis AI, have you? <laughs> All right, well, you guys turned thumbs down on, on the, the AI report's recommendation. Bruce, why don't you tell us why you did? I think the arms race is generally overblown. This is an academic discipline. It's not based on China having more data because they spy on people. Advances happen in public. And I don't see this 1960s-era competition between the great powers. This is good. These advances are going to happen in much more in the open. And I think the arms race is is not real. And I worry about it. A that is, I think, a pretty common Western academic view. Uh, I, I, I think you have to worry, though, that there's a little siphon off to, to a completely confidential private sector, private sector, private decision about how to use this for Do you mean the NSA purposes. or something else? I'm sorry. No, I mean, I mean, uh, taking those that technology and using it for military purposes. In, oh, so, so U.S. Yeah. Cyber Command. Terrorists will do that. Yes. But and, the advances and, and, are and, happening not by the militaries. I mean, they're yeah, yeah, no, no, I, I agree with you there. They and are not fact, happening the, with the military. The, the basic inertia of those institutions is such they are so far less effective. Like the stuff the hobby drone folks are doing just blows away what you can talk about in a military context. Let me just ask you, do you think that's true for China's military, which has a lot more frankly, popular support among its academics than uh, the U.S. Yeah, because they're wasting time with hypersonics. I, I think it's important to understand that AI is not one field, right? It, it, the domain in which you apply it matters. 
And I can totally see the Chinese getting ahead of us on things like facial recognition because they're able to install cameras in every city and take a picture of every Chinese person out there and really improve dramatically how they surveil their population way more than we can do here for privacy reasons. But that doesn't mean that will apply to AI used in drones or AI used in business processes. The, as Bruce pointed out, the algorithms themselves are actually not secret. They're well known. Most of them are very similar to each other. In many ways, the advances kind of move forward on the academic timelines. But how you train the algorithms with the data is where you can eke out quite a bit of advantage. And it's not clear to me that the Chinese will have a data advantage in every field. I think in some fields, because of the totalitarian regime, they will have an advantage. But I don't know that we actually care that much about the advantages that they will get there. And that advantage is less than you think. It's not about more data. It's about the right kind of data. This notion you, you get spying people more, you get more data to do better is, is just not true. Well, it's not true in an absolute sense, but it is true in a general sense. So, so I agree that the space race, the sort of 60s era space race is not the right analogy here. That in fact, in fact, China and the US are progressing because they're sharing talent and, and ideas and there is much more transparency. But the, the limitation on the applications is stark and severe. And you, we can be something other than a th an authoritarian country and still get a lot more advantage than we're going to be getting. And we should be concerned about that. Ironically, I'm willing to bet that uh, uh, China's face recognition is less biased in dealing with at least Asian faces than any American uh, uh, face recognition technology. They've got a lot more practice. Okay. Yeah, but it's not just facial recognition, you know, even business uses or, or even, you know, detecting fakes, deep fakes and whatnot. A lot of AI applications that we're interested in go well beyond cameras. Yeah, but if it's people, I, I think you're yeah. right. The, yeah. the the requirement for you know human research board uh, review, uh, institutional review, uh, and all of the fear about putting a foot wrong with the quote unquote ethicists means that you're more likely to do that in a country that doesn't have that hang up. IRB only matters for the academics, and the rule I have is if the IRB rejects your idea, it should either be your massive money-making startup or the next reality TV show. <laughs> but it's not just IRB. We're, we're not talking about IRBs. It's not exclusively IRBs. It's also right to data deletion. It's opt-in requirements. It's no processing that is unexpected if under GDPR style of regimes. You know, this is much, much greater than just research restrictions. I, I think the medical field is the one where I would give them the advantage because of the hard uh, constraints on privacy-based constraints we have in this country to collecting that type of data. And obviously they are very unconstrained and that's where you could see them move ahead of us. I thought this was interesting. One of the things, I mean, they, they listed their seven priorities and some of them are quite unsurprising like uh, semiconductors, but one of them was dealing with the uh, diseases of aging, uh, it, uh, which I guess if you're Xi Jinping starts to look kind of pressing. Uh, and since I'm in his age cohort, I, I agree, but it, it it's not a military, There's, the military applications there are modest, but the opportunity to, to make real progress is probably, as Jane says, more substantial in a country where you can take those records and you don't have to worry about the government at least getting sued for having done that. All right, let's, one other topic that I, I thought we wanted to talk about briefly is uh, as we think about our industrial policy issues, we're facing First, a very determined Chinese effort in chips, and second, a, an awkward 
effort to patch up the relationship with our allies about uh, their relationships with China and with us on these industrial policy issues. Nick, um, the chip thing, the Chinese have been pursuing it a while, not completely successfully, but if you spend enough money in that field, you're going to be able to build very sophisticated chips, aren't you? Or if you steal it. So what it really comes down to is there's high-end fab for CPUs, high-end fab for uh, memory. And those China has been very aggressive at. So like there's currently a criminal case in involving China trying to steal DRAM fab info. Part of the bigger worry is... Truth be told, being two generations back on the CPU side is no longer nearly the killer it was a decade ago. Because Intel is two, two generations back. Yeah, Intel's two generations back. So you end up being at the same level as Intel. And it's something to watch going forward because it's what I'd be doing if I was China. You need a good CPU design. That's why they made sure that the ARM Chinese is a separate company so they can license the ARM designs without having to worry about U.S. putting pressure on them. This is a very hard, this is a very hard race for the U.S. or the West to win, isn't it? Chinese in the end, if they get close, can force their entire economy to switch to Chinese designed and built chips. Well, Part of the reason why ARM is so important is it means they don't have to shift the software stack. That in dealing with complex systems, you really want to borrow as much code as possible. And so there are many CPU designs out there, but there's really only two architectures that count. x86, which is a bloody nightmare, and ARM, which is a nightmare, but far less so. And so... There's other architectures, like RISC-V is a lovely architecture, but if I'm building a system, I'm never going to be uh, basing it on that because I want to take advantage of the software stack. So they're making sure going forward that they still have the software stack. That's also why they can't block GitHub at the Great Firewall. It's the one site that they can't block. But, but you know, the, the, the process is what's still very, very difficult for them to yeah. replicate. And they need a lot of U.S. technology, the lithography and everything else that's coming from either U.S. or the Netherlands, actually, which basically has a monopoly on all that stuff. And, you know, the Trump administration was trying to put the entities list together for SMIC and, and, and other Chinese companies to basically prevent them from getting those tools, which can really put them out of business and, and can derail their efforts for decades to come. So, it's not like we don't have a, ways, a way to pressure uh, their industry and slow them down significantly if we use the full toolkit of our sanctions and, and uh, more importantly, entities list powers. Well, Domici, let me ask you about this because uh, our effort to stop China from achieving dominance in building uh, chips depends ultimately not on stuff that we make, but on stuff that the Taiwanese, the South Koreans, and the Dutch make. I mean, we, we play in those industries, but we're probably not dominant in either of them. That really raises the question, can we keep a sense of unity about the goal here with countries for whom 
their industries uh, on these questions are really, really important domestic constituents, and they really want to continue to sell to China. Well, that's one of the things that Silverado is going to be working on. But it's important to understand that semiconductors is, is sort of not one thing, right? As Nick was saying, there's the processor design, which we're still the best in the world at. There's the fabs, which we're no longer the best in the world at, and TSMC is by far the leader in Samsung on memory. And then the third piece is the equipment that you need to actually manufacture these things in the fab, and that's really still a U.S. and, and a Dutch industry. So we do have roles to play here. One of the reasons why we, we've fallen behind on fabs is actually environmental regulations. This is an exceptionally dirty business, literally, in terms of the pollution that it produces. And one of the, the ways that the Taiwanese went ahead is they just basically told TSMC, we don't care if you dump all this nasty stuff into the ocean, go right ahead as long as you become the dominant player. We can't do that in the US, obviously, China can. And that's why I think they will, unless um, we figure out a way to, to slow them down, achieve dominance in the fab uh, space. All right, well, let's move to this week in speech suppression. We've got the Facebook Oversight Board recommendations and Facebook's response to them, and a lot of kind of mulling of the great deplatforming and what it means, that basically the deplatforming of much of the right. YouTube did say very generously that someday they may lift the Trump suspension when they decide the risk of violence has dropped. Jane, do we actually see any kind of consensus emerging about what to do about Section 230, what to do about platform speech suppression? No, not at all. And in fact, one, one thing that makes this an interesting time is that you even see a lack of ideological divide right now. So you have people like Erwin Chemerinsky and Josh Hawley arguing for the same yeah, that's I, I was astonished. So, yeah, so so first talking about you know the sort of Facebook oversight board, uh, a, a couple of takeaways I, I got from it was that you know Facebook clearly was trying to outsource the not just the decision making but all of the public resentment that goes along with the decision making. And they've done that to some degree, haven't they? I mean, people are are trying to lobby the face the board to to to, to uphold the Trump ban. All a lot of the focus now is on the, this board. That's true, but the board is now shifting the decision making back. Like if you look at a yes. lot of the recommendations, they're like, okay, do a human review. So some things just aren't possible, like a human review of every appeal for for automated takedowns of certain sorts. Some things are just like, okay, see if you can do better, if you can, you know, reduce type one and type two error more. And it's just very vague. And so, um, so I'm not sure it's going to work in the long run, but it has, I agree, it's deflected some blame in the short run. So for section 230, though, you know, that basically there are a lot of people who want reform that would tend to cause more content moderation. And then there are a lot of people who want reform to require viewpoint neutrality. That's the sort of Josh Hawley, Erwin Chemerinsky model. And then very few people, but I'm probably one of them, is okay with the status quo. <laughs> so for the people who want more content moderation, they, I don't think, have, have really come through with a theory of why self-management isn't, isn't, isn't good enough. You know, when, when, you, when you demand more moderation, you're interfering not just with speakers, but listeners too. And so, so I, I think that calls for moderation that go well beyond the sorts of unprotected speech that are already unprotected probably has, un, you know, constitutional fault, constitutional invalidity. 
So the more interesting model, I think, is the is the requirement that if okay, platform, if you're going to keep your immunity from from lawsuit from civil lawsuits as a publisher, then you have to you have to engage in neutrality with your content moderation. That also might be unconstitutional because there is a diversity of platforms and people choose different platforms for different types of speech. And and so, you know, so a platform is expressing something when it decides to purge more or less of some kind of some kind of uh, a controversial speech. But the, I think the bigger issue for me is that it's actually hard to thread that needle that if you are going to demand viewpoint neutrality, but still allow for any amount of content moderation based on other values like civility and respect, which which these, you know, the, the proposals seem to do, then we're going to wind up asking, you know, okay, well, was this takedown the result of of of, of a genuine, authentic Oh, yeah, people people will just yeah. game that system. The, the, exactly. the, the content right. moderators who are ideologically motivated will have no difficulty yeah. saying, uh, oh, I think this was incivil when they're looking at right wing speech. And then they'll just right. uh, yeah. they won't they won't get around to it if it's left wing speech. Yeah, those are the suspicions already. So I think the real issue is the parlor issue. It's it's actually not the platforms per se. It's the decision of, of companies like Google and Apple and Amazon that have that are bottlenecks for critical resources for platforms that have decided to use their power to to keep some communities, you know, basically offline and uncoordinated. And that's what really I mean, that that I think is the reason that you see this ideological mix up why why you know it's not you can't predict based on a person's politics how they're going to feel about so i think part of what's going on here is that it's true there are multiple although not many platforms any one platform is almost certainly completely dominated by somebody who's get who's who's captured the social net network effects and so if you're deplatformed there saying well i can go to facebook instead of twitter there's two problems with that you've lost your entire following on twitter and you have the same ideological epistemic closure in silicon valley about you that you had at at facebook so i it, there is some appeal to the antitrust approach to say if we just had more competition, if we had less of a of a monopoly, these these companies would not feel as though they could take out their monopoly profits in virtue signaling. They'd be interested in getting the business, or at least some of them would say, "Hey, you're, there's an underserved market here for people who are conservative or black or what have you." So that's the best argument for a neutrality approach, whether you get through there through competition or some other some other means. I and it, and it might be right, but I am skeptical for a few reasons. One is that actually with more competition, you get more pressure to create algorithms that give people what they want. And so you have this sort of red meat content problem. You know, even within these platforms, there are there are filter bubbles within filter bubbles, right? We and the algorithms are more or less reducing the transaction costs to get people the kind of short-term hit that they want, you know, the dopamine hit that they want anyways. And so I'm not sure competition solves the kind of speech, you know, I think we're all sort of trying to to, to lunge toward the goal of simmering down the debate and getting 
you know, getting more factual agreement. And I'm not sure competition does that, even though competition might be good for other reasons. So the, the other reason I'm skeptical of that, again, within platforms, you wind up having sort of small communities anyway. So the the, the fracturing happens no matter what. And there's some value, arguably, to allowing the really far off loonies, <laughs> I'm going to, you know, sort of um, pejoratively characterize what was happening with Parler to allow them to, to, to allow them to allow Facebook to, and others to force them into their own um, silo. Now silos, I know generally those are bad to have, but if the consequence of having, having some people with really bizarre beliefs is that the entire, you know, the, the, the middle of the, the terrain, the, the sort of majority of people wind up spending all their time and resources trying to combat these bizarre theories, it, it winds up, I, I think that could have a polarizing effect in itself. So, so I think the social science on this, it kind of is all over the place right now. There's, you know, some evidence that, that siloing would be bad, some that, that it would be good. And, and I just, I'm not sure what to make of it. And, and I generally prefer the status quo for now. So I, I, I can't help noticing that, that, that your, 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 concern here is we don't have enough social research to decide whether markets are good and whether people can be trusted to make up their own mind. Those are things that we thought were kind of resolved uh, as a political matter in the United States hundreds of years ago. And there is a very profound elevation of academic values in saying, yeah, because we're not sure that the the social consequences of the profit motive here and letting people say what they think are good, we're just going to squash it. I, I'm just not completely comfortable with that. Nick? The problem is, is we have some data points on what happens if you don't moderate and don't pay attention. So Reddit in the old days was very much that. And you had things like creep shots and jailbait and these communities of of pedophiles normaling their be normalizing their behavior. 4chan, 8chan, 8con resulted in multiple mass murders. And probably the biggest example of what happens when you're negligent on your moderation is the Rohingya genocide in Myanmar. That that was very much driven by Facebook's lack of attention and lack of monitoring. So we do know what happens if you go totally hands off. The externalities are big. So I, you know, I, let me just push on that briefly. That is a consequence of what the internet has made possible. The, the people who carried out the massacres of, of, of Rohingya are responsible for what they did. To say Facebook should have stopped it I, it just reminds me of that cartoon that says, I can't go to bed now. Somebody on the internet is wrong. Uh, it, 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 it's, it, it, it is Facebook not was really... warned that their platform was being used in those ways. Any well, so, people. Aren't they so, warned about so millions of bad things every day? So, so that's, but even if you know that, that, that this is happening on your platform, it sounds like there's no great solution because if you cut it off too aggressively, then they go then then they will coordinate in some other way because the internet is bigger than Facebook. If you don't, then you you know then 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 you may be helping to on your own platform to coordinate some sort of vile action. Now the interesting thing is a few years ago at TPRC I saw a paper presented about I, I'm I forget if it was Facebook or Twitter, but one of them did an experiment of, you know, very quietly 
what's the opposite of that they demoted basically certain messages but didn't didn't but it was not very transparent and the lack of training sorts of stuff yeah Yeah. and and the lack of transparency in the short term i think that that works well but in the long term of course you you make everyone twitchy and paranoid okay so i i I will only close with this that interestingly there is right now competition over ideological handling of search terms the right has come up with the idea that uh, the left is has as many dumb conspiracy theories as the right, but that on the right, they're all called QAnon, and there's no name for the ones on the left. And uh, the suggestion was, why don't we call it BlueAnon? And people began assembling lists of crazy left-wing conspiracy theories under the heading BlueAnon, and Google has shadow banned BlueAnon. If you type that into your Google search bar, you won't get any useful responses. Whereas I, I made a switch to Bing about a year ago. And Bing and DuckDuckGo. It's as anyway, they just have content associated I, I have with to, it. I have to say, I haven't noticed. It used to be a, a, a really obvious difference between Google and everybody else. That's a lot less true than it used to be. Anyway, yeah. so I. Yeah. DuckDuckGo uh, is not as good as Google yet. I believe that. I believe that. Uh, so I, I, but I'm, I'm prepared to work with Microsoft on, on this. I'm channeling things through you, uh, through Google for a while. Didn't that they happen? were doing that. They were doing that for a while. They were paying me. I think they, they were giving me credits of some sort for using the, the, the search engine. But they don't do that anymore either. I, I want to go back to cybersecurity because. We 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 have because that's what we all know about exactly. You know, that would be good. Uh, but this week was full of suggestions about things we could do, mostly things that people were explaining didn't work uh, and or explaining big problems. Bruce, you had a, an article talking about the national security risks of late stage capitalism, which if I can quietly, uh, if I can quickly summarize it, which is once you've got a product that's successful, it doesn't make sense to spend a lot of time on keeping it secure because you're going to make the same amount of money until it dies that you would have if you spent a lot of time on security. Basically, that, basically, the, 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 because buyers don't know enough about security to judge your products based on it. So SolarWinds is the example I used. It made business sense for SolarWinds to skimp and underspend on cybersecurity because the customers didn't notice and didn't make buying decisions based on it. So the market pressure is less security. And there's an economic term for this of lemons market. So yes. in a car world of car dealers selling used cars, absent regulation because the buyer can't tell the good cars from the bad the dealers have the incentive to give bad cars until it collapses dimitri but bruce uh, is it because they don't know or because they don't care you know we've seen so many breaches over the years where that has zero impact on the business for the company because people just uh brush it off and continue use, using their products go into their stores and the like so i think it's both now the issue now is it has national security implications it was, it's not that you're a consumer, you don't care if your drone's secure. It's that you're a consumer, you don't care if your drone's secure, and now someone hacks it and uses it as a bot to take down the power grid. So the so, externalities are building up into national security problems. And that's the real worry right now. So here's and my... the only way you can deal with externalities and market failure is government action. There's no libertarian solution to externalities and market failure. One of the things that worries me about this is it seems to me from watching 
Silicon Valley companies rise and fall, that uh, Silicon Valley writes off companies 10 years before they're dead because their growth is at an end or it's it's no longer going to be enormous. And that means that while you're going to make a lot of money, your future is time limited. Or you're not going to make enough money, right? SolarWinds is, is private equity funded and, and they... And the business model really is find companies that are kind of sticky, wring all the costs out of it because you're not going to lose customers because of the of the stickiness, and you know exact as many short-term profits. SolarWinds did it at the expense of our nuclear research. The trouble is that that's completely rational economic behavior. That it's is the good. trouble, and that's why that's why Nick points to regulation as the only solution. Okay, uh, so I have to say what I what I really liked was the OODA loop article that put the recommendations of all the graybeards in the last 15 years about how to get cybersecurity uh, and how government policy should uh, should work in a chart with a, with a little X as though it were a feature chart for a product you were buying. Uh, and there are like a dozen recommendations that come over and over again, they either don't work or they've never actually been implemented. Dimitri, this this was an, a fun chart to work with, but what's the lesson to draw from it? Well, the lesson is, and one of the reasons we'll talk about later why I'm doing Silverado, is that the recommendations, if you dig into them, are too high level, and there's actually no roadmap for how you actually get it done. There's no specific legislative language, executive orders, how do you stage it, how you build consensus for this, and that's what you need to actually push things through uh, in DC. It's not just about writing a report and saying government should do X, Y, Z. Half the people out there won't even read the report and, and the others will, will, will not care much about it and will forget as soon as they read it. So the, the, the reason why the Salarium Commission was, was quite successful in its effort is because they didn't just come up with another report. They specifically worked on legislative language. They socialized it on the Hill with administration and pushed that, that through. That's what's required to actually make a difference here, not yet another report that no one's going to read. I, I think that's probably true about the, the Cyber, Cyber Solarium Commission. They, a, a lot of stuff that they did that they pushed through was a good idea. I think they pushed and worked too hard to get the their vision of a cybersecurity director who had to be Senate confirmed because they weren't going to get that through the Senate without that. And now we have like two proposed structures, one that the Biden administration is carrying out and the other that they're legally obliged to carry out. No, that's right. You know, I don't agree with everything that they did, but there's a bunch of things that I work with them on, like uh, giving CISA new authorities to hunt on federal networks, even if the federal agencies do not let them voluntarily. Those are the types of things that actually tangibly will improve our cybersecurity. And uh, there's a lot of great stuff in there. All right. What about this, the notion that everybody should be required to disclose breaches? That's a requirement that I'm hearing a lot about, and, and I, I frankly find it moderately attractive, but there are people who don't think that that's actually going to do much good. I, I think it's actually a really important issue and one that was obviously highlighted in the SolarWinds situation. The breach notification laws we have right now, whether it's the state laws or European laws like GDPR actually, in, in my opinion, make things worse, uh, not better, because they create the wrong incentives. They're focused on what was stolen, i.e. PII, personal identifiable information, and it incentivizes companies, I've seen it firsthand when doing IR, to actually not look and not try to figure out what's stolen so that you don't have to report it. I think a much better solution would be not to focus on what's taken and not taken, but actually to determine if you have 
malicious activity taking on your network and report that to the government. And it can even be done anonymously because knowing who the victim is is interesting, but it's actually not super useful. But if we had known, for example, when Palo Alto identified that their SolarWinds server was compromised back in September of last year, if they had reported that to the government and, and we had known about that tradecraft being used and the government could have disseminated it, we would have learned about this this whole operation way, way earlier. So that's what I think is required here, not to name and shame companies, not to focus on revealing yet another credit card breach or uh, PI breach, but really understand how it's been done so that we can protect ourselves against that trade. Yeah, you know, I think the, the idea that you have to disclose breaches had a pretty valuable impact on what had been a culture of denial for a long time, and we're glad to have gotten that. But it's it's really, as you say, you don't really you're, you're spending a lot of time hoping that you don't find that personal data has been compromised and asking yourself, do I have to disclose it? And when you disclose it, it has to be public and you're going to be sued. And Randy Milch had a great article in Lawfare about how the attorney client privilege, as it's currently structured with respect to these forensic reports, is quite counterproductive. And and so something that instead says, you just have to disclose it to the U.S. government and the U.S. government may come back and investigate sort of the equivalent of there's been a car, there's been a, an airplane crash. We better figure out what went wrong. That kind of thing is probably going to be more productive over the next 10 years than the personally identifiable information breaches. And you see that in the proposals, right? Back in the early days, we were relying on public shaming. The early breaches, companies took a lot of bad press. Now that breaches happen every day, you just lose that shaming so it's less effective and you're right that kind of analysis is really what people are talking about for the next decade that ntsb like system so let me let me i i, I want to get to the interview with dimitri yeah we've he just, been here all along <laughs> he has been uh, and he's been dribbling out the you know, the pieces of the interview as uh, as it, we've come to it but a uh, couple of things uh Big report from the Atlantic Council on offensive cyber capabilities proliferation. Bruce, Dimitri, useful contribution or too academic and too ethicisty in the in the Baker sense? I think there's a lot of useful stuff in it. Certainly coming on the heels of Nicole Perlross book. You had her on your podcast yep. a couple of weeks ago. These cyber weapons arms manufacturers, it's a big industry. It's, they're, they're being sold to countries. We don't want to have them. And I think the Atlantic Council report really does explain a lot about how the industry works in a way that's useful. Okay. I, I think it's important to point out, I tweeted this this weekend, the biggest proliferator of uh, exploits has been patches because that's how people actually figure out how to exploit systems. A patch comes out, you diff it, you, you figure out what's changed, and then you start exploiting. That's how a lot of, this, a lot of people get compromised. It's actually not through zero days. Yes, there's abuses with NSO and, and the like with human rights issues that we should focus on, but it's actually not the biggest problem we face. But that's a problem for cyber crime. Certainly patches are how criminals get the zero day. When you're talking about nations, it, it's the, the stealthy ones, right? The four China used against Microsoft last week were not through, they didn't get them through patches, right? They got them by finding the zero days. Correct, correct, uh, Bruce, but they're continuing to use them even though they're no longer zero days. And having investigated literally thousands of breaches, nation state breaches over the last couple of decades, I can tell you most of the intrusions are not zero days that they use. Well, why use a zero day if you, unless you have to? That's exactly. the, that's the thing. And we hear so, that from the NSA. I mean, they've given public talks where they said that it's not zero days, it's uh, 
it's access control. It's authentication. That's how we get in. I mean, zero days are important, but they are not a great. They're not the only thing. And, and most is it Eternal patch, Blue or is it Mimikatz? That's right. Yeah, but, but most people also don't patch. So a vulnerability that's five years old will still be very effective against numerous targets. Yeah, I saw a crazy uh, statistic that Eternal Blue, so like 18%, 20 are still vulnerable to it. Of course. So this is not a solution to cybersecurity. It's a solution to imposing our moral judgments on other countries and on an industry that has just the worst press in the world. Cybersecurity. And it's an industry that's kind of gross. Yeah. And you don't want of... Sudan to have cyber weapons. You don't. We're not going to be able to keep them from getting them. If, if, if the Israelis aren't selling it to them, the Chinese surely will. Well, Facebook is uh, making it harder for the Israelis to sell. As uh, a quick hit, my favorite of these merchants, uh, NSO Group, is apparently back into being investigated by the DOJ. Just random rumors, uh, and, and, not uh, saying what it is. You can understand, the, the, theory, the theory would be they went after people, computers that were in the U.S. and used them for C2, if I remember right, and that would be a violation of the U.S. Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. Well, and the, the important thing about NSO and some of these other vendors is they don't just tell you the exploit and say, go off and use it however you want. They're actually providing a platform to operationalize this and, and actually execute some of these operations on behalf of their customers. So they're really you know, taking the brunt of the liability here, both moral and legal, for the operations that are being conducted. And that's the Elida Council report, this yep. notion of access as a service, which I think is a really interesting contribution. Okay, Virginia has passed a second state consumer data protection law a going well beyond breach notification. Jane, how different from the California CCPA is it? It's not very different. I would I would say it's it's just a light version of, of the CCPA and it still uses the sort of basic basic keys, you know, has the basic building blocks from the CCPA that, that people are expected to more or less own their data, have some limited right to deletion, to opt out of sale. There is no private right of action, which is where a lot of the action is for, for lobbying and whatnot at the state level, which is the same as, as California right now. I, can, I have to tell you, as a Virginia resident, it's, it is head spinning to, to go from a, a place that named a local road, the Jefferson Davis Highway, to being the second state with a consumer data protection law. The, the politics of Virginia have dramatically changed. Okay, and since you first came on to talk about COVID uh, tracking, uh, we'll let you tell us what the Israeli Supreme Court has done about COVID tracking. Yeah, so the Israel Supreme Court decided that Shin Bet's what they called clandestine spying, although we all knew it was happening, so I'm not sure that that's right, but that their use of GPS in order to track people who tested positive for COVID in order to know who has been exposed. That program is dismantled, except that Israel can still use it if for, for individuals who test positive and refuse to cooperate with human contact tracers. So it actually, my understanding is that it's actually not that different from what Chinbet itself had decided to do, which was use it only for, you know, recalcitrant people who, who tested positive for the disease or when the level of COVID transmission had spiked in the country. So I guess we're 
that's my theory about 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 Israeli court decisions. They sound pretty sweeping and and and, and lefty, but the it's a small country. Everybody talks. They know what they can do that the government can handle, and they order them to do that. But one thing I learned from from the litigation is that it looks like the surveillance program was pretty effective. So the, the irony is that the court said only three out of every 10 positive virus cases were successfully tracked using the data surveillance. Jeez, and, we, you know, we, so, we kill for that. So, other people are skeptical, but even the skeptical numbers seem to be around 10%. And that's, that's huge. That's, you know, those are lives. So... All right, last story. A bunch of cybercrime forums in Russia got hacked and doxxed. Bruce, is this a big deal? It's hard to know. It's kind of neat. We don't know who did it. But yeah, Brian Krebs reported this, that four cybercrime forums have had data stolen. The worry among the criminals is that it can be used to identify them. We don't know if other criminals did it, if a government did it, if some noble hacker did it, it's going to be published. So it's really interesting to watch. We don't know who did it or why. All I know is, though, I want the data so that I can turn it into another research paper. Yeah, No, it's absolutely huge because obviously people use different nicknames across these different forums. Having the backend databases to allow you to link together who is who and reveal bits and pieces about people's identities is going to be hugely instrumental in in actually finding these people and and potentially prosecuting them down the road. Uh, If we're lucky that the good guys have this data. Yeah, quite unprecedented to have three of them hacked at the same time. And you kind of have to question who would have the motive to do so. Could it be an allied intelligence agency? You know, that, that could be a very productive use for, let's say, Cyber Command or others that, that want to fight cybercrime. If I'd bet on anybody, it would probably be GCHQ, not Cyber Command. Yeah, they, they, it's interesting. GCHQ, in a way that NSA simply wouldn't dare to do, has signed up for a law enforcement auxiliary, and they are using their tools to go after cyber criminals of various sorts. I think this is going to be of considerable value to Bellingcat in the future, and I'll do a a plug. Next week, we're going to try to get Elliot Higgins from Bellingcat to come on and talk a little bit about some of the things that they've been able to do, most famously figure out who uh, tried to poison Navalny and then getting Navalny to call that person up, pretend to be his boss, yell at him and get him to confess. It was great. <laughs> it's it's pretty good theater, yes. They're a great group. Okay, Dimitri, uh, let me, let's turn to you. This is the interview part of the uh, discussion, but it's only going to be distinguished from the rest of it by the lack of crosstalk. I wanted you to come on and talk about the Silverado Policy Accelerator, and which is something that you've just kicked off, a nonprofit. And I, let me start with, why did you decide to do it? Well, I, uh, I left CrowdStrike last year really to focus on building this organization because I do think that the third pillar of, of the cybersecurity and, and actually broader problem is policy, right? You know, throughout my career in cybersecurity, I focused on building technologies, focusing on unveiling attacks and generating threat intelligence that can be helpful to organizations to understand who's coming after them. But the third piece of how do we shift government policy to actually fundamentally change the game and improve our security, but also focus on deterrence and other things when it comes to actors that are violating our norms is super important. So that was the impetus behind this organization is how do we 
actually, you know, there are lots of people that have great ideas, but how do we use those ideas to actually move the ball forward as opposed to keep writing reports that no one reads? Yeah. Okay. So the, 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 the goal of Silverado is not just to come up with policy ideas, but to try to move them forward. That, that's actually the fundamental mission. The worst policy accelerator were picked very carefully. In many ways, we're trying to apply a venture capital approach to policy ideas. We'll generate some ideas, but actually the point is not for us to come up with new ideas. I think there's plenty of good ideas out there. And what we want to do is harvest those ideas and actually fully develop them into concrete proposals that could be legislative proposals, could be executive action proposals to uh, move the ball forward. And actually also think about how do you create the right incentives and build consensus around those issues. So for example, you may not be able to get everything you want in one fell swoop, but how do you think about incremental progress step by step to make us all more secure in the case of cybersecurity, but also in other areas that we work on. So. Do you have the ideas now? And the question is how to how to move them, or are you going to be going out trying to develop the ideas? It's a mix. So we've put together an amazing advisory council that's led by General Petraeus and former Prime Minister of Australia Malcolm Turnbull. A lot of people with expertise in cyber and in trade, industrial uh, policy, and, and environment, the, the pillars that we work on. And one, we're we're, we're coming to those people for ideas. But we're also going to run an ideas competition where we're going to open things up to others to submit great ideas to us. There'll be a prize uh, for best ideas, and those ideas will go into the acceleration process. But yeah, we do have some of our own. Obviously, I spent my career in cybersecurity and have thought a lot about the issues that need to be pushed forward. I just testified in front of House Homeland Security on some of the proposals in that space. So it'll be a mix of external ideas as well as our own. So I, I, I agree with you. you. You've been talking about policy on cybersecurity for a very long time. And, and it's, sort of, it's sort of nice to have freed up the resources to go out and, and do it uh, full time. And so there, I, I would have thought you've got some pretty clear senses of what ought to be done. Let me just then just ask you, in cybersecurity, what are three or four things that you think are politically doable? Well, I think we talked about this earlier. The breach notification is absolutely getting a lot of traction. It was great to see Microsoft, Brad Smith, come out for it because in the past, the Chamber of Commerce, of which Microsoft is a big part, has been opposed to anything. And to see a full-throated endorsement unprompted from Brad Smith for the ideas that, that we've discussed is, is fantastic. So I think something can happen on that front. I think the, the idea that, that I sort of coined as make CISA the CISO of the federal government is also starting to get traction. The administration is thinking hard about how do you empower CISA to do more to protect the federal government networks. We realize that yep. 137 plus different uh, executive branch agencies doing their own thing with mixed results and, and mixed uh, talent bases and budgets is just not gonna get us to where we need to go. So not to say that CISA is amazing right now, we definitely need to build it up, but centralizing that in a way that the Brits have done with, with GCHQ and, and, and the <laughs> NCSC, thank you, is the right model. They actually go a lot further by, by making it uh, focus on the entire country. I, I'm, I'm talking about it just protecting federal government civilian networks in the same way that Cyber Command has responsibility to protect the DOD networks. I, I don't think we'll get there you know, in one fell swoop, uh, but incrementally, we're starting to see progress. The defense authorization bill last year that gave uh, CISA the authority to hunt is a step in that direction. And there are other th steps that we can take. But I can see in five, seven years, we can have CISA become that centralized agency. But the important thing is to think about the steps that, that, that you need to take to get there.
I think that makes a lot of sense because there's no other candidate, really, unless you wanted to put it all back in NSA, which is politically hard to do. And and as you say, CISA is far better than it was 10 years ago, mainly because it was given some tasks and then it was given the money to do those tasks. And um, those tasks are not enough to secure really even DHS's own infrastructure, but it's a start. Uh, and it's crazy to have the Federal Mediation Board making its own cybersecurity decisions. So the idea of turning this over to a more centralized structure and to do, doing it bit by bit, giving them new jobs, letting them fail, giving them the resources to succeed and pushing them to continue to succeed, clearly uh, what they've, their response to solar winds was to start issuing orders to everybody about how quickly they needed to get their patches done. That's the beginning of the exercise of the kind of CISO authority that you've been advocating for. So yeah, it does make sense. That's right. And, and the third element is really how do you solve the ransomware problem, which is actually one of the biggest issues we now have facing our small businesses and, and w- which really underpin our, our economic growth. And if you think about it, the reason ransomware emerged with such a vengeance over the last 10 years is there's really only one reason, and that's cryptocurrency. Before that, if you wanted to collect a ransom, you had to provide your bank account information for someone to wire you money. And guess what? You would be quickly discovered and uh, and prosecuted, or at least those bank accounts would be frozen. With cryptocurrency, you can now demand hundreds of millions of dollars in anonymous payments and, and, uh, and get away with it. And I think that there needs to be an approach, and the Treasury Department is already starting to consider it, of a KYC for crypto crypto transfers, for, for personal wallets and the like, that would not solve everything, but would make it much more difficult for criminals to operate anonymously in this domain. Okay, so that those are all practical the, 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 i mean you're you're advocating things that others are advocating which makes sense you know having having the only being the only person who thinks that this is the right answer is a recipe for not getting it done uh, and how far do you think the accelerator will push this are, is is your idea that you'll go out and actually draft legislation or actually try to get a, a group organized around a particular solution so we, we do want to run campaigns, educational campaigns with policymakers and broader public to build consensus for this. There is a reason why this is a bipartisan organization and the people we have um, advising us are on both sides of the aisle is that to get anything done in this town, you, you do need that bipartisan consensus, particularly on the more contentious issues. And we, we want to see what, what's in the realm of the possible. We may have 15 ideas, but we know that this year, um, only three of those can have political traction because of other external events are taking place and the window is open only for that. So let's push that. Let's let's uh, talk about it. Let's testify in front of Congress as I did a few weeks ago and uh, talk to administration officials and see if we can generate traction for this and really create a, create a big push for, for, for those specific ideas. Well, you'll know that you're starting to have an impact when people start uh, criticizing you personally for having some kind of agenda that because what you're advocating is something that they find inconvenient. So are you ready for the uh, the demonization? Well, I've, I've, I've had to deal with that for quite a number of years now and a variety of different conspiracy theories that have been created about me. So uh, yeah, it's, a, it's an unfortunate part of, of the business these days. So you also talk beyond cybersecurity, your, your paper talks about industrial policy and trade in the environment as, as two other areas where you really want to do something. Uh, do you have the same well-developed sense of what might be doable in that context, or are you looking for more help? 
So both. So I'm not an expert in those areas. We have a co-founder of mine, Maureen Hinman, that is a trade um, environment expert and our executive director has actually been the chapter lead, uh, Sarah Stewart, for USMCA, specifically on environment technology. So we do have others, other people in the organization that are experts at this more than, more than I am. But the reason we're focusing on all these areas, and some people may say, well, what's the connection between cyber or trade or, or these things? The real focus of the organization, if you sort of step back, is a great power competition. How do you deal with the emergence of China? And, and how do we ensure, really, American prosperity and competitiveness in the 21st century and beyond? given those challenges. And in, in our minds, the three key areas from a civilian perspective, non-military, that you can really make a lot of progress in on these issues is cyber, is trade and industrial security, and it's what we're calling ECOSEC, which is really the intersection between economic and ecological security. So we're very much focused on how, how do we move the, the ball forward in the environment, but at the same time, making sure that this helps to create more jobs here in the United States. One of the things that I think is counterproductive as an example is to say, well, because we want green, to, uh, green energy, let's just outsource all of our solar power production to China and, and we'll get cheap, cheap solar panels. That is counterproductive because from a national security perspective, when would you ever want to outsource all of your energy supply to a foreign country, particularly one that you're now in an adversarial position with? And at the end of the day, it doesn't actually help you to get to the, to the point where you need to be, which is create an innovation base here domestically that can produce these types of technologies. So you're, I, I, I hear from what you're saying that you think industrial policy is if not a good idea, at least inevitable, and that we ought to get good at it. Well, we, we already have it, is the reality. If you think about how many hundreds of billions of dollars the government already spends giving contracts to private industry and all kinds of things, we, we already uh, are in the top you know, five for sure of countries that are, that are spending money on this. The problem is we don't have a strategy around it. And we need to go back to what we were doing in the 60s and 70s. You know, we talked earlier about semiconductors. The reasons we have a semiconductor industry is because the government invested in it and gave money to, to, to the folks that created the Silicon Valley. The reason we have GPS, the internet, and all those sorts of things are because of, of government policy and government spending. And, and we continue to spend money, but what we're saying is let, let's focus on areas that actually make sense and, and do, do it in a much better way. So the, the hard problem with industrial policy is that it is inevitably a political process. You know, we had an industrial policy that said we, we need green energy and the Navy started buying biofuels, paid 150 bucks a gallon, if I remember right, at one point for, for the most expensive green energy that they purchased. And, you know, six months later, uh, people realized, you know, it turns out that fracking was a whole lot better investment than trying to get the ships of the Navy to run on uh, biomass. Uh, and so, but biomass was more politically attractive than than fracking. Uh, so how do you end up with po industrial policy that actually you know, is industrial as opposed to just uh, politics? Well, first of all, you have to focus on areas that really matter. I would argue semiconductors is one of those. Mm -hmm. And by the way, bipartisan consensus now around CHIPS Act and realization we can't have all the fabs be in Taiwan, even though Taiwan is a friend. What happens if China invades? What happens if China does a blockade? Planes will literally start falling out of the sky, right? Huge issue for national security with, with the COVID situation. We now realize that maybe it's not a good idea to outsource all PPE production overseas, right. even to countries that are our friends, right? So, uh, you know, you now have consensus that in certain areas, we just have to have it here at home. 
And, and look, there's, there's ways even in recent years where we've been very successful at industrial policy. Look at space, right? The reason that SpaceX is successful is because of government funding, because after the shuttle disaster, the government said we need private industry to figure out new ways to go up in space and make it cheaper. And they bet on a number of companies, including SpaceX. And look, we now have, for the first time in over 10 years, American rockets going up into space and, and putting up humans, Americans, back in, in, into the International Space Station. So those are the types of things that we need to double down on and do it in a smart way. And look, not every experiment will be successful. It's like venture capital. Right. Most of the venture capital investments fail, but the one that succeeds is going to pay for all the failures. And that's how we should be thinking about it. What about, tell me more about trade and the environment. What's your thinking there? We talked a little bit about one reason we don't have a semiconductor industry is people are reluctant to, to see a bunch of poison dropped into the Pacific Ocean. There is some tension there. There, there absolutely is, and you, you need to think about how do you navigate that. One of the ways that you can potentially make up the gap in the semiconductors is to have the government fund you know, the, what would be untenable for private industry, the, the use of clean energy in those processes so you're not polluting the environment, but at the same time, you make it economical for, for the industry to actually operate this way. That's one example that, you know, we, we, we could approach. But on trade in particular, you know, there's a reason why we focus so much on trade in the last four years, because China's practices in this field, along with the theft of intellectual property on the cyber front, is really what's driving their economic advantage and ultimately what's driving their military improvements because obviously they, the, as their ex economy expands, so, so does their military spending. And that's what's creating a national security problem for, the, for, for us today. So how do you balance this out? How do you realize that free trade is a good thing, but not when one party, i.e. China, is violating all the rules and is literally telling our negotiators that our objective is to destroy your industry. This is literally what they've told our negotiators in WTO. So you just can't accept someone into the club like WTO where you have a rules-based order, but one of the parties is not interested in following any rules. And I do think that the Trump administration was right in confronting China on this. And that's why you see the China issue and in many ways trade with China being one of the few things that is actually carryover from the Trump administration to the Biden administration now, because they realize that what we've been doing up till now is untenable. Yeah, I, I noticed that, you know, you, you, the, the materials on this describe it as bipartisan. And I, I'm used to that meaning we have a bunch of never Trump Republicans along with the Democrats. But the ideas that you're talking about are bipartisan in the sense of actually things that Trump Republicans might support as much as Biden Democrats. Yeah, and we have a couple of people on the advisory council that have been part of the Trump administration, as we do people that have been part of the Biden campaign and, and in the Obama administration. But Tom Bossert, obviously, who we know well, was Homeland Security Advisor for President Trump and really one of the foremost experts on, on cyber and, and has been instrumental in, in, in some of the China policy as it relates to the Commerce Department entities list and how to deal with China on things like Huawei. We have Nadia Skadlo, who wrote the national security strategy for Trump, specifically around how to deal with China and Russia. So we want to bring those people in because they have great ideas to contribute. They, they have unique perspectives on what can be done, not just what should be done, but what can be done, both in government and, and in Congress. And that's why we want to have a broad tent of, of folks that can come up with, with ways to, to drive these issues forward. 
Well, and to, to, to give Trump his due, especially on this issue, he's the one who broke with 30 years of increasingly strained consensus that if we just continued to trade with China, everything would turn out all right. And that's over. He he ended it. But I think the uh, the Democratic Party has embraced the termination of that, uh, that consensus. Stuart, I will tell you, a senior leader in Congress on the Democratic side who does not agree with Trump on anything, told me a few years ago, still during the Trump presidency, that he's a Trumpist on China. That's yeah. a direct quote, uh, which is just remarkable. So, and and in, in a way, all the three uh, policy areas that you're focusing on come back to the challenge that China has posed to the United States, it seems to me. It, it is a great power competition issue. Russia, obviously, on cyber front is, is, is a big concern as well. But yes, China is no doubt one of the big problems that we face and our allies face. You know, the reason Malcolm Turnbull is involved in our organization is because from an Australian perspective, they're very much bearing the brunt of Chinese aggression right now in that economic sphere. But we need to have an allied approach. And that's something that I think the Biden administration really brings as an enhancement to the Trump policies, not let's go it alone, let's let's screw the allies, but let's figure out how do we bring consensus? How do we, in some cases, pressure them, but in other cases, figure out a way to, to, to leverage their economic advantages and, and sometimes relationships with China to really create a united front to, to confront China and really change their behavior. So this is, this is an area where new thinking is really essential and I wish you well on. Finding mechanisms by which you can get the West, if, if you include Japan and Taiwan and South Korea and the West, to, uh, to agree and then act together together to oppose pressure tactics, which uh, you're right, Australia had a, a golden 25 years, and now they're paying the, the price for that in terms of political pressure. It, but figuring out a way that we can hold together when our interests are going to be pretty dive is something that we definitely need more new thinking on. Yeah. And look, Malcolm Turnbull, to, to give him incredible credit, was the first leader in the Western alliance to say, we're not going to use Huawei inside of our network long before the United States did it. So, you know, there are courageous um, leaders out there. They're willing to take a stronger stance. Not everyone in Europe, unfortunately, is, is, is following a suit. But that's why you need other levers as well. And I think the Trump administration, again, using the entities list very effectively with Huawei to really almost overnight change the UK decision on, on Huawei, right? The, the UK was going along this middle line of we're going to use Huawei in certain places. The entities list designation comes along and they instantly flip because they realize they won't be able to actually get any supply if Huawei is not able to get chips. So sometimes, you know, we have to use those levers of power as well. So last question, if people uh, are enthusiastic about the kinds of things you're talking about and contributing to it, what should they do? Well, go on our website, silverado.org, contact us if you have great ideas. We're not soliciting money. We're we're good on that front, but what we do need is, is great ideas in, in, in the areas that we've talked about. So if you do have those, uh, we'd love to work with you and, and try to figure out a way to, to push those ideas forward. All right, Dimitri, you've been a great contributor to the policy debate for the last 10 years, but this is, uh, this is uh, really going to accelerate your contribution. So that's uh, Dimitri Alperovich of the Silverado Policy Accelerator, silverado.org, and I hope you get a lot of uh, folks volunteering to help out. I want to thank uh, Jane, Nick, Bruce, and of course, Dimitri for joining us for this episode. Uh, if you're 
interested in the podcast and want to uh, make a contribution uh, uh, to it as a kind of producer, engineer, intern, we are still thinking about doing that. So there may be an opening. Can't promise that. But uh, if you send your CV to cyberlawpodcast.steptoe.com, we will hang on to it in case we make the decision to go in that direction. Uh, I want to thank Weissman Sound Design for the music. This has been episode 352 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you.